Welcome to the Books Talk podcast from Lincoln City Libraries. This program was recorded at the Bethany Branch Library on March 8, 2019. Lisa from Isley Branch Library discusses some of her recent reads. I am a big fan of Hollywood and Broadway books, anything about film and, and theater, I will pick it up, as you know, if you've heard me do this before. Um, this is a wonderful book. It's called Hank and Jim, The 50-Year Friendship of Henry Fonda and James Stewart by Scott Amon, and he is a terrific writer of about entertainment figures. So if you, if you want to read in that genre, he always writes great books. But this is just so moving, and I think a lot of people don't realize that they were such good friends. And they met as young actors, struggling young actors in New York City, they were trying to break into theater, and they actually were roommates when they first were starting out. And then throughout the years, uh, they, they were roommates again several times, um, just either when uh, when Henry Fonda was between marriages, every once in a while he would come and stay with Jimmy Stewart and Gloria Stewart, um, or when one of them was in the you know in the service and came back, and they they when they, they were both in the service, but. Of course, Jimmy Stewart remained in the reserve for a long time. He, he was involved in the military for a really long time. But and then it just it just traces their their careers and how they were completely different in so many ways. They were just polar opposites. It you know Jimmy and Gloria Stewart, James and Gloria Stewart were married you know as forever, <laughs> and um, Henry Fonda, of course, had a very checkered <laughs> marital history, and um, they were politically polar opposites, their temperament was very different, um, but, they, but they shared a lot, too, and what they shared was more important than what was different, and um, they both, for instance, loved elaborate, practical jokes. And so they were always playing jokes on each other. And on, when they were working on films they, or, or on theater productions, they would do you know, things to the cast. And um, they were, I think they were particularly um, hard on, oh, I can't think of his name, the Western director, Ford. The, oh. Yes, the other, yeah. They were very, very hard on him. Um, <laughs> But another thing that I really enjoy about this book is they, you know, people kind of debunk or they criticize that this generation of actors and just say, oh, they were hacks. You know, they really weren't acting. They, were, they didn't study acting. You know, they weren't method actors. But, but they both loved their craft. They loved acting. They talked about it all the time. It was the, the single most important thing they had in common. And, and people that knew them would just describe them. They were always, to the very end, you know, of both of their lives, they didn't want to give up their craft. And, you know, Henry Fonda was so sick when he made On Golden Pond. He was in, in such bad shape. They had, the last three projects he, he worked on, they had to bring him to the, the set, basically in a wheelchair, and, and put him, prop him up on the stage, but he refused to, to quit. So it is, it's delightful. And it, even if you think you know a lot about them, there's, there's a lot to learn in that book. It's very sweet. But it's kind of hard to read sometimes, too, because Henry Fonda was a very, <laughs> very difficult person, I think, to get along with, even for himself. I think he had the hardest time getting along with himself. And I also, one of my other things I read 
frequently is anything about medical history mm. and scientific history. My mom was a nurse, so I think I grew up kind of interested in that. And I read a book recently called Quackery, which if you like that sort of thing, is really good. And so I've been, this kind of was on, this came up on my Amazon feed. You know, if you like this book, you like this book. Um, and it's called The Butchering Art, Joseph Lister's Quest to Transform the Grisly World of Victorian Medicine. So if you have a weak stomach, don't read this. <laughs> it is, yeah, it's, it is, they do not pull any punches because it is not pretty. Medicine, and, and it starts it starts out about in the, like, the 1830s, 1820s, 1830s, when there was still no widely approved or used method of anesthesiology. Mm -hmm. um, there just was nothing. <laughs> they might be able to, you know, you could drink a lot, but then you'd probably throw up. Um, and there was just nothing. You just, so uh, surgeons were fast. They had to be very, very fast with what they did. Maybe not accurate, <laughs> maybe not clean. Definitely not clean, but fast. And so they would, like the the men who were the the most renowned surgeons in 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 Western medicine, in the United States, in Britain, wherever, were big, strong, burly men who could cut things out or off very quickly, and they would <laughs> they would yell at the beginning like. So so Joseph Lister, the who's in the who's the subject of the book. He used to yell famously before every procedure. He would have his assistant there with a watch, and he would yell, time me, gentlemen, and then he would begin. So, but this is about just this amazing transformation that, you know, all of a sudden, <laughs> filtering through the grapevine of Victor early Victorian communication, they started to hear about ether and how it could be used um, you know, to affect uh, painless surgery. And so um, it, be, it was very controversial, extremely controversial, and there are several other really good books about this, this whole situation from the American side because it really started here. It was much more common, commonly used here, and it still wasn't common at all. It started in Philadelphia. They were using it quite a bit. And, and for dental procedures, it was actually more, started out being used more for dental procedures. But... There were doctors who absolutely refused to even try it because they said that, yeah. you know, it puts the patient, I can't talk to, I can't hear the patient scream, basically. <laughs> so I don't, you know, I don't, just, like, I can't tell what's going on with them. It's, and, you know, they had really, we, when we look back at it from here, the, the reasons that they were using to not, you know, that they were giving to not use it are just like, what? But um, it is, it, it was, it took a lot of selling you know, it took a lot of, of stubborn, you know, to make this change. And what I also love is they taught, they, in addition to talking about there's Lister. No you know, there's no pictures. <laughs> there's no pictures. Yes, that's, that's a plus. Although you can't go online, there is a website that's, that is associated, should you want illustrations. But yeah, not only do you get to know about Joseph Lister, who's a real character and a fascinating person, but, but they also talk about just the evolution of medical training and how, you know, they really were starting to standardize medical training. And by the end of his career, 
you know, we, we were close to modern medicine. And so he started, when he started practicing, when Lister started practicing, we were still closer to the medieval practice of medicine with leeching and, you know, bleeding and emetics and all that lovely stuff. A purging and not washing her hands. <laughs> and they would, and they would, the only, there were, there were doctors who, who would wash the operating table off and put on a clean apron. But they only did it so they wouldn't scare the patient. It was not for cleanliness. It was so that they didn't make their patients nervous. But some surgeons <coughs> believed that it made them look like a stud, mm. you know, to come in in this yeah, bloody blood. apron with them blood everywhere. What was the book, Destiny of a Republic? Who was oh, oh, but James Garfield. Garfield. Did he, or didn't Lister help treat him? I remember hearing his no. name. Yeah. It, well, Alexander he, Graham Bell. Rice, they didn't pay attention. Yeah, he may have weighed in on it. I can't remember. There were so many people involved in that. he basically was killed by sepsis. probing right. the by sepsis, wound by infection. Yeah. I just thought he was one of those Wasn't that the they asked the Well, and then he also went, yes, he also, he also was a, a pioneer in a, in a septic procedures. And, you know, he figured out that cleanliness seemed to produce a better cure. And well, what, what, one of the things you, you don't realize that you learn in this, I, this is one of my, I love this I love book. But one, one of the things that you learn in that book or that you learn when you read about medicine at this time is people who were treated in their home did much better. Mm. Like they could survive because they weren't in this incredibly filthy environment. You know, yeah. there was some chance to keep it cleaner. So, so they, you know, there were some medical people who were noticing this and asking why is this, you know, but it's, yeah, it took a long time to figure it out. Um, and then this one, also so good. Inseparable, the original Siamese twins and their rendezvous with, with American oh, yeah. history, Chang and Eng Bunker, um, so interesting. People don't realize a lot of how famous they really were. They were incredibly famous, world famous, um, and they, they were discovered in, at the time, Siam, which is now Thailand. Um, by a Scottish agent. Uh, he was a, there for a company, his, representing his company. He was a businessman. Um, and one day he was on a selling trip on a boat and he saw that this, th what he thought were two boys swimming in the water. And then looked, he was looking at them thinking, what is going, something's not, yeah. not right here, or not normal here, or not what I expect to see. And the, as he watched them, they came out of the water onto the dock, and it was Cheng and, and Bunker, and he realized, oh my goodness. Uh, he basically you know, bought them, or yeah. he hired them. Well, he's, the, the thing is that while they were you know, a freak show, they always were very shrewd at handling their money. Their, their parents were, were business people. And had brought them up, and they had their own business when when he when they were you know discovered, they were successful duck merchants. They had a, a duck farming, duck raising business, so they knew. I mean, they were not ignorant of business practices at all, and so they really made a lot of money out of the, <laughs> exhibiting themselves. Um, they lost it too because. A lot of times people, I didn't realize that they were Confederate sympathizers. They lived in North Carolina. They sided with the Confederacy. They were slave owners. Um, and they actually um, 
invested a large amount of their state their life savings in Confederate bonds mm -hmm. and Confederate money. So after the Civil War, they were they were bankrupt. They they just are not what you imagine. You know, you imagine circus freaks to be exploited. Yeah. Um, and so often they were. And so often they were. Yes. And they were. But but the, they buck the trend in almost every conceivable way. And they and they just are so interesting. They had a fascinating life. They just were they kind of refused to let anyone take advantage of them. And and they were lucky enough to have been educated to the point where yeah, that where they yes because so often parents would more or less disavow yes but their parents they were very close they had a big family um, they were all very close they raised them just the same as all their other children and yeah they were very successful in their town where in their village where they lived they were very successful young businessmen and no one thought anything of it or if they did they didn't make anything out of it. So, you know, to the way that they were raised, I'm sure contributed to that. And and the other thing that is, Yun Tae Huang is the author, and he also wrote a book about Charlie Chan. So his, his focus is on stereotypes, you know, particularly Asian stereotypes, and how he does deal with human exploitation. That's really kind of what he's writing about with regard to just slavery in the United States and how they played into, it's just, Really interesting. I was wondering if they probably didn't mention, but they were only connected by this like little thing like this. It's a, it was just a big yeah. Well, they talk about like, it quite a bit. Oh, they, yeah. Yes, they go into so it I just in great wondered detail. If nowadays they'd been able to fix that. I think they probably would have. Apparently, didn't share any bodies. No, 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 they definitely could have been separated. Because it was just. But I wonder <laughs> if they would have wanted to be. I See, wonder. I wonder yeah. that if they would have chosen that. So far in the book, I haven't come to, if had, I mean, it's often suggested that he talks about that, but I mean, I, I've never, of course, I don't know if anyone ever offered to do that or if anyone could do that for them, but I wonder if as adults, they would have chosen that. And this is a book, it's not technically a biography, <laughs> but I, I included it because it's, it's so good. And I just think everyone should read this book. I, this came up on my, um, Libby feed on my my downloadable suggestions, and and so I thought, okay, I'll I'll give it a shot. And it's called Prisoners of Geography: Ten Maps That Explain Everything About the World, mm -hmm. and I would say that I this is a huge marker in my life reading this book, because I could say that before I read this book and after I read it, I see the news, history. You know, yeah. kind of recent and current events completely differently, mm -hmm. and and maybe people know all this already, but it's it's just he is just great at pointing out. For instance, you know, China um, is really active right now in um, Africa, mm -hmm. Central and South America, wherever in in the Middle East, wherever there is kind of a vacuum left. Where, for instance, and he, he makes all these connections, like he talks about the map of of the United States where we see the shale oil deposits and, and the natural gas deposits and how we've become our, you know, we've become able to supply a lot of our own energy needs now. So we are less and less involved with other places. So what happens? Well, the, the Chinese are coming in there and, and uh, taking over where we left off. And for instance, I did not know that there is a, a Chinese businessman who is funding with his own money, he's a multi-millionaire, um, a, a canal in Nicaragua that mm -hmm. he, he yeah. plans to rival the Panama Canal. Mm 
And he, he, you know, he, because then China has, because we are still controlling the Panama Canal with Panama. Yeah. We share control of it. And so I, it's not, we don't know how it's going. Apparently it's not going all that well, but it's just, it's fascinating. And he talks about Russia. You can, their entire focus is to get a warm water port, which I kind of always knew, but I didn't, but I didn't realize how tenuous and how perilous that is for them and how they just can't seem to hold on to what, that's why when you read about Ukraine and the Crimea and everything that happens there, I never really thought, you know, it's like, I kind of know why it's strategically important, but I don't. And now I, I, I get it, you know, so inexplicable things become a lot more. So he's looking at today's map. He's looking at the maps today and then, but over, but, but also through history. And he's going back. You know, if you go back far enough, you get an argument for the United States and South America fitting into. Mm -hmm. Oh, Pangea, the whole thing where we were all together. Yeah, yeah and he he but talks about that. Real ancient, you know. But he's talking more. He is talking more about since the dawn of political maps. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you keep listening on China and with the, uh, the number of seats that are available when we make choices as a world on things and how they're influencing Africa and seats yeah. on their money. Yeah, they're very, very much. I just opened to this when you were talking. And it, but it is so interesting. You, it is interesting. But then his, his, his point also is that geography will always be destiny and that no matter how technology advances, there are just certain things you cannot overcome geographically. Like, it, I didn't realize this, but the entire... GDP of South American countries is equal to that of approximately Germany and France or France and the UK, something like that. Because when South America was colonized, also Africa, people, the people that came to exploit the resources stayed along the coasts. Mm -hmm. they, because largely, for he shipping, says, yeah. because for shipping, and number one reason, mosquitoes and insects and disease because if you went too far into the interior you would get malaria you would get you would die of all kinds of terrible you know things that would kill you and and he's like this is he said this is still the case in many places and there's no modern remedy for it you know it's it's so push the for it because the pharmaceuticals have no desire because there's no money to be made because the poverty level but then also he talks about how there are still discoveries left to be made, but that yeah, they won't they won't go there because there's it's too dangerous. It's still too dangerous after all this time. You you know, even with all of our modern wonders in medicine, we can't protect against some of these very ancient diseases. They're still very you know, they're still a big factor and I never I guess I knew and I know you know these things, but he puts them all together and I'm like, oh wow. And I, he's written some other books and essays and he I really enjoy his writing he makes it it goes really quickly too and there I, I've listened to the audio mostly and then I've also been just picking the book up when I need clarification so but the audio is terrific so I I know you've all are aware of Hamilton and and Alexander Hamilton very much has been in the news over the last few years and uh, it's, I felt like I was hoping that someone would come out with a new um, biography of Eliza Hamilton or a biography because there really aren't any definitive <laughs> biographies of her. She's, she's hard to write about because her family just pretty much destroyed all of her correspondence, which is common for women of that time in that class particularly. But 
they were very <laughs> thorough at getting rid of her. And she didn't, she didn't have a lot to begin with. Explain the concept of why they would get rid of all this Be stuff. Well, because, you know, women were, the family would want to protect, like, his papers are, you know, historical, historical yeah. of historical significance. Mm -hmm. And the family fought very, very hard to, to get all of his papers. They had to work really hard to gather all of, of Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton's papers in one place. Um, and it was a, like a big struggle. But for <coughs> women at that time, they were not considered public figures. And so very often they would on their deathbed or as part of their will, you know, as part of their instructions for their survivors, they would ask that their personal correspondence be destroyed and because they didn't want people to intrude. They wanted to keep it personal. And I think also those that maybe didn't care as much, they still, their families still went ahead and, and, and destroyed it just to protect their reputation or their honor. Because, you know, you didn't even tell your friends that you were ex pregnant, you know, until you were, until you, or your very most closest friends, you would mention it. But you, you know, until you w were showing and then you were only out in public for a short amount of time and then you, you know, hide if you had that kind of money. But I, it just, it is, it, it is amazing to me how many of these really brilliant, accomplished women who were, who did write maybe not in a professional way like the men in their their lives did but who did a lot of correspondence but we have we just have nothing from them but there's enough left of responses of people to her letters and we do have enough that they can put together something but I don't I think it must have been very difficult there's a novel out too about her that's really good but this is it's very good it it reads quickly it's well written and he is still, I mean, even after, I've read probably, I don't know, four or five books about him in the last couple of years, and I still find him a very enigmatic figure. He, he was not an easy man to be married to. <laughs> he, he was, um, of course, he was famously unfaithful to Elizabeth. There are, I want to give away all the secrets of the book, but there exists proof or some people believe proof that that he married her, you know, for her money and connections, and um, he because he wrote a letter um, to a friend that survives, where he he said that you know well basically to sum it up she'll do, you know she's she's exactly what I'm looking for she'll definitely do you know because X Y and Z, but when you look at just their marriage and what does survive of their correspondence, it's clear that they were very passionately in love with one another and really had had a, a more than just a marriage of convenience. It's interesting because we the written records that are left still don't answer that many questions. But she was a Schuyler sister and if you there's a couple books also out just about the Schuyler sisters about she and her sisters which are good too. But they were one of the, you know, truly the founding families of the United the colonies and and helped win the the war you know for independence so it's she's just i really love her i'm i'm not i'm i'm not so sure about him i admire him yeah. and i and i think he was an amazing man personally <laughs> <laughs> i would not have wanted to be married to him at all but but you know he he was quite a handful but this they do a good job with what they have to work with and they really do bring her to life 
and you can't, it's just so funny because he was such a domineering presence that you can't read about her you know, without it really being about him. And, and she, she loved her role as his, you know, helpmate. And there are definitely, there's definite proof, historical proof through notes and uh, documents that are in his papers and other collections that she was instrumental in helping to write and edit the Federalist Papers in many of the founding documents and important addresses that he gave and his speeches, that she was absolutely his partner in, in a lot of the writing and um, speaking that he did. But I mean, he was, wow, she had to deal with so much loss and death and uh, it's, it's sad. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a sad life, but it's, it's a great life too. So I'm glad they, that this came out. I hope they come out with more. Oh, and this, this one is just wonderful, especially if you, if you have a young um, woman that you want, like to give books to um, who's plucky and adventurous and you like to inspire her, this is just a terrific, would make a great gift. Um, this is Fly Girls, How Five Daring Women Defied All Odds and Made Aviation History by Keith O'Brien. Of course, Amelia Earhart is in here. Um, but the other four other women, Louise Thaden, Florence Klingensmith, Ruth Elder, and Ruth Nichols. Um, and the author focuses on them, even though there are a lot of other female aviatrixes, aviators at the time. These women were pioneers in actually air racing. So they just didn't, they didn't just fly. <laughs> they did these cross-country races, and sometimes international. And if you have any fear of flying, yeah, again, don't, you might not want to read this. <laughs> it's like, oh, it's, it's, they, he does not, he is really good at describing just how harrowing this was to be in these planes and, and how like they were always this close to just crashing and burning. And it's a wonder that, that they even flew at all. And, and just that I love the stories of how each one of them came to be a pilot and why and, and um, what drove them. And he's really, he's really good at, at talking about what their conflicts were. Several of them had to deal with negative publicity. A lot of Amelia Earhart in particular, you know, was, she was just, she was such a celebrity. People like today, you know, like the royal family or whoever, people were constantly commenting on, you know, her personal life. And just, she, there was no, no privacy for her at all. You know, I was reading through this thinking, wow, it's just, he really does a good job of describing what she had to go through. Just. You know, she had a different set of burdens, I think, than the, the lesser-known pilots, female pilots. But, um, it's about five women um, pilots in the early days of aviation who were, they were air racers. But very, it's thrilling. It is so exciting to read that I definitely don't want to be a pilot. <laughs> but I love that, that they did this, and you can live through, through the stories. It's, it's terrific, a terrific read the days when they just flew in the fields over the fences. Yeah, that's they talk that's exactly what they're talking about here and how they would they would build these planes like literally in their backyard with you know, leftover cloth and whatever they had lying around and they would they had they didn't have really instruments, you know, just and sometimes their instrumentation they had to take into the plane with them because yeah. it wasn't installed wasn't in the plane. Yeah. You took it from plane to plane and just had it <laughs> in the cockpit with you. Well, and, and to a great extent, the they followed the train. 
Right, they would follow the train tracks, train and tracks. The, and if there were telegraph Omaha poles, was a required stop, and so yeah. was North Platte. Yes, and the um, the other thing is like they would they would follow the train tracks, and then at night when they can see, sometimes they would have to just fly really low to the yeah. ground yeah. so that they could see any landmarks at all. And so they would talk about, and you know, you'd be your biggest danger when you were flying those night during these races at night was that you would hit a tree. Or that you would take out the top of someone's house, or you know, oh, the get. Would be well, on yeah. the international race, they were supposed to land for night, and they weren't supposed to fly on Sunday. No. There were some that broke the rules. <laughs> but they they definitely flew at night because they, yeah. they yeah they talked well yeah they worked to a landing field sometimes yeah, yeah. time it was night. As them being mothers and all of those things, I think they were just bucking the times too. It wasn't mm -hmm. like every mom was doing that. No, that she could come home and say, "Well, you know, on this flight today we did this and so." There was nobody really to talk about it no. except those people. It's it's Why amazing. Not? Well, and they also one um, you also get to read about the the um, evolution just of aviation in general. Like they talk about you, Cessna, the man that founded the Cessna Aviation, and and. Um, <coughs> Uh, beach, yeah, it was Beechcraft, and so they're they're in there. So it's all in there. <laughs> and this this is a little bit older book. This is not I have false advertising because this is a little bit older. But because there's been so much attention lately to the royal family with the crown and Victoria, and this is if you're interested in learning more about uh, Victoria's daughters, kind of what. The, how it all led into World War One and future conflicts. How um, the dynastic marriages that she made for her daughters really didn't did not help in the, in the yeah, long well, run. They were lying about that one. Like yeah, it's really it. good. It has any? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's called Victoria's Daughters. She had five daughters: Vicky, Alice, Louise, Beatrice, and Helena. All of them were married to, with the exception of. Which one? Louise was was married to a British lord, but the rest of them were married to um, royalty. royalty. There weren't yeah. any royal people they could marry. No, really, and they were all you know. <laughs> no, yeah, and she wanted to know what was going on in those. Countries. Right. She. I mean, they were definitely obviously political marriages and alliances made through through marriage, which is you know they would never have expected anything else, um, and they had varying degrees of success in their in their marriages, but. It's, it's just all, it's so interesting to read about. She was counting on those alliances to keep the peace in Europe. That was her intention. It was very strategic. And, and she really believed that with, with her children married into these, these uh, other principalities and kingdoms and countries that they would never make war against each other because they were cousins. But of course, the First World War is sometimes called the Cousins' War because that's exactly what it was. They, they were all related, and I don't know about you, my family, they, I wouldn't think that they, most families I know, they fight, so I don't know what she was thinking. Um, that was a nice thought there, but it's, I don't. They wouldn't dare do that with mama. Yeah, no, they wouldn't do it when she was around, but, get, and, and things didn't work out, you know, the way that she had been hoping they would. Because yes, people either die when they're not supposed to, or don't die when they are supposed to, and and then that and a it's a problem. And so they uh, they did not cooperate with Queen Victoria and her plans. 
it's really what's also interesting about this book is just her as a mother like i think with like eleanor roosevelt and queen victoria i think people are so hard on them but really she's the empress of the british empire she's busy you know and, and she's got a lot going on and i and i just think that it's really cut her some slack and i, I know that she had a lot of help you know but even so even so i know she was kid, man. she had like so seven, many children seven, sorry, yeah, yeah. and within about nine years yes but and i think we we are looking at this from our standpoint too and but even for her time she was a, a difficult mother i mean she was a hands-off mother but i think well, that was typical but that yeah. was typical and particularly mm-hmm. yeah she was particularly in europe in, and in and in the aristocracy, she didn't want to be the mother. No, she to be and she didn't. You know, when we have all of these existing comments, nobody burned her letters. <laughs> I mean, we we have a lot of comments by her, like, "Oh, I'm pregnant again." You know, <laughs> like, "This is a drag." You know, it's how many times she 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 really enjoyed the what doing what it took to get pregnant but she was li- literally yeah. made that statement you know <laughs> it's just like it's too bad that this has to be connected to that we know that she um was typical of her time you know she, you you did you shipped your kids off they still do in many boarding cases school. to boarding yeah, school you, they yeah. nannies raised your children um you saw them maybe once the children's hour it yeah, means what it says the, yeah. Your staff, your childcare staff, brought your children down, all scrubbed and clean, and ready for bed and fed. And they brought them into the drawing room, or they brought them wherever you go, the parlor or outdoors, for you to spend some time with. And then they took them away. Yeah. And you traveled without ever feeling guilty because you had a staff taking care of your children. You would never take your children with you. Um, although she, you know, they did travel with her sometimes they because stop, yeah. they had to. They had a job to learn to do. But as a rule, you would not until your children were old enough to do, you know, make the grand tour or they had come out in society, you might travel with them. We can look at back at how she raised them and I, I don't, she was just typical. And I think she was more, she was even more in that situation than people, her peers, because, you know, like I said, she had a lot going on. <laughs> she had so much to prove and she couldn't appear weak or womanly womanish i think that that was a lot of it is is that it was impressed on her from the very beginning like melbourne and all those people that all the prime ministers and people that worked with her you know constant her advisors which you can't appear weak yeah you've got to be strong and she that's what she did and yeah so you can't be maybe as as soft seen as soft this one i just love and it's about something I never really thought about. Um, it's Caught in the Revolution by Helen Rappaport. Um, and this is, it takes place in Russia in 1917, right before the revolution, Bolshevik Revolution. And it deals with the expatriate communities in, in St. Petersburg, largely, but they talk about other areas too. But it starts out with um, you meet all these different characters in St. Petersburg who are. Uh, in the diplomatic corps, so there's an American diplomat. Um, the British ambassador to Russia is is a big figure in here, and their families and staff. There are merchants in here. There are the granddaughter of President Grant um, and Julia Grant, who's also named Julia. She married a Russian uh, prince, 
And so she is here in this, she's part of the story. But there was a huge community of, of European and American expatriates living in Russia, doing business. They had been there for hundreds of years um, and were very well established. So we don't think about those people as much being affected by the, by the revolution. You know, you kind of think more about the czar and his family and, and the aristocrats versus the, the proletariat and the, the people who were rising up. But this, this was an, an entirely different kind of untold story. And again, this, Helen Rappaport's a really good writer. And she makes you feel like you're, you're there. And she describes the, the increasing shortages after the First World War and how, you know, she really just shows you you know, you kind of have some concept of the, the inequality, the inequity between the aristocracy, and which, which was the absolute worst in Russia of anywhere in Europe. It was just appalling. But she really describes all these little things that, that happened, that, you know, and how, how there were all these missteps, that you know, all these opportunities for the czar, for, you know, the court, for everyone to, to change. And that they were given opportunity after opportunity, and it was just every single time, you know, they they messed it up. So, it it was a, it was a not a comedy of errors, but it was it, it just kind of was inevitable. But it's really interesting. I didn't. I never knew about the, these people or how many of them there were, and a, a lot of them, you know, refused to ever learn Russian, which is interesting to me. <laughs> there were there were many in, in the diplomatic corps. They spoke. They spoke French. It was the it was the language of the court. They didn't have to uh, learn Russian, and in Russian was considered you know lower class. And why would you ever be the language of the peasants? Yes, it was the language of the peasants. Why would you ever be talking to the peasants if you're the ambassador from England? But um, they had servants, like their their servants would learn Russian, and so they would go out and do all the trading and business that they needed to do. And so some of their some of the servants that worked in the households became almost as well known as as their masters as the people that employed them so and they're they're still kind of a few of them that are historical figures in their own right so and this this one if you like scandal and <laughs> and who doesn't um this is a really good um it's the Betancourt affair the World's Richest Woman and the Scandal That Rocked Paris by Tom Sankton. How many of you heard about this? It really wasn't that well known here. Um, but this is about Liliane Betancourt, who was the heiress to the L'Oreal Cosmetics fortune. And at the time, in the early 2000s, she was the richest woman in the world. Um, she was a billionaire many times over. and. Her family was still active in the in the company. Her her children and other people in the family were active in running their part of the company still. Um, but she, you know, was not. She did not work. So she became friends with a questionable character. I have to get this just right. Francois Marie Bagnier, who was a who had been. I think he just was like a professional. Sycophant, you know, he, he was just like a professional <laughs> suck-up and sidekick, and he he uh, he became sort of sort of famous in in France for hanging around with Salvador Dali and all the surrealists and famous artists, and he himself was maybe an artist. We, you know, he was a photographer, 
of some note. He had been an artist subject many times. They had he'd been in photographs and paintings. So he was just, he was around the art world and he knew famous people. Uh, he was a name dropper. Um, he really did know people and, and was considered, had some talent of his own, but what he was really talented at was just finding rich people and hanging out with them and making, and making them feel good about themselves. And so um, he and Lillian met and there's many different, you know, it's a lot of different stories about how they met. But she was, her husband um, largely just let her do whatever she wanted. Now, Francois-Marie was, was gay, so there was never really a question of them having a physical affair. But it was a lot like Truma Capote and um, the women that he was involved, if you have no. know about that whole thing, um, his swans. It's, it's kind of that same thing. They were inseparable. They did everything together, but you know they were just they were friends. Um, but the people in her family did not trust him, did not like him. You know, it's very. This often happens, and and her her daughter in particular um, really wanted him gone and viewed him as a threat. And so um, eventually, she gave him millions and millions of dollars in gifts, cars, clothes, as one does. <laughs> to one's to one's sycophant <laughs> sidekick, you know you can't you can't be. It reminds me of Ward McAllister if you know about the four hundred Mrs. Astor. Her very similar, very similar. Just like your sidekick, your what do you your little what do you call it? Your toady, boy toy. your boy toy. Yes, good. Yes, <laughs> that's right. He is also a toady, so I guess I would say toady. We'll go with that, but. So eventually, her daughter, Francoise, sued him and uh, took him to court. And that was a huge scandal because the family secrets all came to light. Um, and then he, of course, went public and told his side of the story. And it just became a big, huge, ugly war in the tabloids. Um, and everybody had an opinion in Europe and France at the time. But it's just it's interesting. It's if you're tired of reading about our celebrities, you, I thought perhaps you'd like some different ones. So you know, it's worldwide. There's some more scandal, but that's in France. So you know, it might be one that you don't know that much about. There's no Kardashians in there. Kind of refreshing. Um, and then last but not least, uh, we have this is always looking for things to read about Jane Austen. And this is a little bit different take. It's Jane Austen at Home by Lucy Worsley. It has lots of wonderful pictures. And um, it's just about the places that she lived and uh, the ones that, are, that still remain. And of course, her, her girlhood home is no longer standing. But they have excavated. They did a big excavation of the grounds of the Priory where she grew up and of Steventon Rectory. And they excavated the land all around it and where the house stood and they found quite a few artifacts that they talk about and then it just traces her the places where her brother lived and the homes that he inherited from when he was adopted by the cousins it shows places where she would have gone to dances and you know just where she lived her life and so the author has traced all of these places down and has you know what? What are what are they used for today? What are they still like? They you know are there any that are similar to the way she would have seen them? Um, and it's just it's delightful. It really helps you appreciate where she got a lot of her ideas and how similar the settings. Of course, 
they would have to be, but it has similar the settings in her books are to the places that she actually went. And um, it just, you just feel like you know her a lot better. But then it's also sad because so much of her life is lost too. And we just don't, we just won't ever know some of the things about her that we would like to know. Because while we have quite a bit about her, there's just, again, the family destroyed correspondence. So we will never know those things unless there's a trove of letters somewhere that we don't know about. But it's nice when someone takes a new um, angle to her story because she's so well known. But this is a good way to approach it. And, and it's just fun to read. And it makes you want to go reread all of your favorite Jane Austen novels. <laughs> and there's not far less leeching and blood spilled in this one. <laughs> Even though it takes place similar, kind of in the Jerry, same time yeah, period, yeah, 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 not yeah, as yeah. much. So that's nice. Don't be afraid of that. <laughs> and, and there's a story about Dr. Lister, or many, many legends. You'll love this, since I already took you down that road. There, there, there's a legend that may or may not be true, that one day that he he's credited with what they call the triple fatality from one of his surgeries because as he was cutting off, uh, doing an amputation, he, um, he accidentally severed the fingers of his assistant, three of the fingers. And then, and then the, a man who was standing nearby drawing like the artist that was, that was recording. It's very, they, they say it's various people that were in the room, like it's the artist or it's a, just a bystander or whatever. Someone that was also in the room observing uh, was so disturbed by what happened that he fainted and died of a heart attack. And then the patient died of an infection, and so did the assistant. So they say that three people died yeah, from this one. But, but, yeah, but supposedly this was made up. <laughs> supposedly this was made up by a, an enemy of his as an exaggeration. But... Um, we'll go with that. Yes, we'll go with that. So Never next happened. next time you go to the doctor and you just and you don't like it, just think to yourself, it could be so much worse. You could have a bottle of you leeches. A bunch of leeches in there. They didn't know that germ. They didn't have antibiotics. No. It's, it's a wonder anybody lived at all. I just can't even believe it. And if if you this is an area of air was bad for you. Yeah, for, <laughs> bathing was dangerous. <laughs> bathing was dangerous. Really. It, well, maybe it was. And well, was back then maybe it was. And and, and you and just the they were like in that book they talk about if if you were the top of of your profession in at the time you were a doctor and you were genteel, you were a gentleman. You had to be a the upper classes to to call yourself a doctor, and you you would not sometimes not even see your patient, you would diagnose oh. them based on yeah, that's letters. What they're doing now. Well, yeah, that, and it's, <laughs> it's funny. We're yeah, we're going back to that. It's true. And you would never actually visit, like, have a consultation with them. They would write their symptoms to you, and because you knew everything, you know, it was all in a book, and you would just write them back, like, you know, the ancient. Philosopher Galen says that you should, you know, take some powdered mummy and which was a thing, um, and and mix it with honey and some dung, you know, and oh, yeah. rub it on your leg. It, it is boggles oh, the mind. I went to visit my son in Raleigh, and um, I decided to. I like to take a couple books with me, you know, to read, of course. And I took that quackery with me, and it. <laughs> 
Literally, I was like, oh boy. I was sitting at the airport. Just There was one chapter, I don't remember which one it was, and I just could not do it. I was like, even me, I'm not squeamish at all. And I got about halfway through this one. I'm like, oh no, I'm done with this. I, I'm skipping this one. I'm sure the people sitting around me must have been looking at me like, why is she making those noises? But, just, inadvertently, I would find myself going, ew. What must they think? But it's a, it is something I enjoy reading about. It makes me appreciate yeah. what we have now. Like if people say, would you want to time travel? Would you want to go back in time? Not to a place where they didn't have antibiotics. No. Only only if I could be an observer. If I could be an observer. Yeah. If I, I don't want to live quickly. Yeah, leave very quickly. Yeah. If, I, if I could observe and know yeah. that I quick surgery. I, yes, quick surgery. <laughs> if I could make sure that I wouldn't you know, like be exposed to any um, yeah, infectious to agents, yeah, yeah. or mm-hmm. and then I would say yes. But. Exactly. Or eat the food, or yeah. Oh yeah, no. I'm no. sorry about it. Is this a book club meeting? Ah uh, yes, and we nice just to finished. Yeah. Yeah. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. <laughs> Thank you. It's not time travel. It's time displacement. By <laughs> oh, that too. <laughs> I, I learn something new every day. I try. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast from Lincoln City Libraries. You can find a wide selection of our podcasts of book talks and other programs at lincolnlibraries.org slash category slash podcasts. Mm-hmm.